Today we are embarking on a new direction. Uh, we've spent some time um, looking at habits and how they play a role in how we live, uh, how we think, uh, even without us thinking. Uh, last week we looked at dependency and, and how really an absence of dependency makes us unable to really follow God. But the idea of dependency is hard on us. It's hard on human beings. It's especially hard on Westerners because we like our independence. We, we like what it means. It puts us in charge, uh, and we like that. Today, we're starting on a series. It's really on the authority of the Word of God. Now, that might sound like this is going to be kind of a legalistic uh, uh, series, but I think you're going to find it's anything but legalistic. I, I want us to uh, start with some realities about the Word of God. In First John, I'm sorry, in John chapter 1, we see in the first five verses some really transforming words here. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was God, and the Word was God. You see what it's already done with the Word? I mean, the Word of God just got infinitely critical, infinitely powerful, and perhaps infinitely complex. It was in the beginning, and it was actually God himself. He was with God in the beginning, through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So the word was involved. It's an active element of God. We need to understand that. The word is not some stuff on a piece of paper. It's not print of prose and concepts and good ideas and nice ways to live. It's not a list of restrictions for your life, but actually it describes a power that is active. And it's rooted in the person and the identity of God. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. As we think about and as we pursue this idea of authority, we, we pursue the idea of its power and what it can mean and how we often treat authority, I, I think you're going to find it, it has some power that we need to understand that could really become a blessing to us. So what we know about the word is it's an active part of what God is doing. And anytime God is doing something, the word is a part. In Matthew chapter 24, this is towards the end of the book of Matthew, Jesus makes this comment, verse 35, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. You see, you see how often when we reduce the Bible to great ideas or a great way to live or some interesting concepts or even worse, some antiquated ideas that were around thousands of years ago, we begin to 
push up against some reality. That Jesus says, not only were my words valid 2,000 years ago, but my words will be valid 2,000 years after this creation is gone and redone. So, so taking note of just what is the word of God and what it does is important. There are some ways that society, and, and is particularly active today in our society, um, the word is being challenged on two primary fronts that I want to bring up. And it's important that we know that because as a part of society, this is true for all of us. It's true for me. It's true for everyone. Do you know we're affected by our society? We're affected by our culture. It becomes very easy to be indoctrinated by a culture. Uh, we live in it. We breathe it. We have to get along in it. And so that is the culture. But I want us to understand a reality about the word. And these, this is a quote from Tom Wright. A historically grounded understanding of Jesus' proclamation, achievement, death, and resurrection suggests that at the heart of his work lay the sense of bringing the story of Scripture to its climax and thereby offering to God the obedience through which the kingdom would be accomplished. Now, here's, here's what I want you to see here. What Jesus, what, what Tom is saying about Jesus, what Jesus has done is he has brought the word to climax. He has brought all the words in the Old Testament, the words of the New Testament, the storyline of the Scripture. Jesus is saying, is complete in me. When Jesus said, the time is fulfilled, God's kingdom is at hand. That's what he's saying. When he says time is fulfilled, he's really saying the story. I have fulfilled the story. And, and that story is one of the greatest things that is under attack. Uh, I, wanna, I want to show you something. Um, our next slide. You see, if Jesus has accomplished all things in the Old Testament, if there was a story, and in Isaiah it says that God's story, God's plan will come to pass. It is going to happen. And so God has had this storyline across thousands of years. And that storyline is the purpose and the plan of God. And he says, it will not be stopped. And there also is a purpose and a plan for your life and for my life. And that is being challenged in our culture. That reality that there is a plan for you, that there is a plan for mankind, that there is a God with a purpose, a reality for humanity that will not be stopped. Now, one way to look at this is when Jesus says, I am the climax of that story, the story that could not be stopped. If that is a true statement, if Jesus has accomplished the climax of God's story, then it means the story was real. And the story could not be stopped. 
And the story that was talked about in the first century of Genesis and through the centuries after that by authors and writers who did not know each other over thousands of years, that story that was never controlled by one person but by God alone has been accomplished in the person of Jesus. If that is true, then what it says is the word of God is true. And the word of God cannot be challenged by any man, any empire, any kingdom, any amount of money. So, what are the odds, and we'll just take eight, and there are over 250 prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming Messiah. What are the odds of the eight major prophecies coming true in one individual? Now, this was calculated by really a lot of people, but one of the prominent ones is Professor Peter Stoner of uh, Moody Press, and this was in 1957, a great year, it's the year I was born, uh, thank you very much. There's somebody else that was born that year. And it's called Science Speaks an Evaluation of Certain Christian Evidences. Now, before we go to the next slide, what do you think the odds are that one individual could accomplish eight major prophecies concerning the Messiah? A billion to one. Okay, there's a number. Anybody else want to venture a number? A trillion even. All right, well, let's see the next slide. That's the number. If I did that correctly, there's 245 of them. And there's a, there's a little hinkiness in, so if you actually count them, it may not be 245. But it's within four or five, probably. I was just mass duplicating. And so... Um, so, this is just eight. And he has the, the math and the science that he followed on that. You can look that up. It's published. It's online. If you don't like the math, then do your own. Uh, and you can come up. Uh, Melinda is calculating as we speak. Um, please pray for her. My, my point in this is if, if, we, if we believe that Jesus is real and you buy in that he's the son of God and you buy he's your savior, then what you're saying is the word of God is true. And it has the power to never be challenged successfully. It has that power. It will never be challenged. You see, in a day when we want to relook at truth, relook at authority, uh, redesign the way we might allow truth to touch us. You know, if I want to live with my girlfriend, if I want to, um, you know, to only believe part of the Bible, maybe, um, you know, I, I believe the Scripture, but I also have really room in my heart for reincarnation. Now, there are many people like this. This is not, this is not going, you know, coming down on, on a belief system. What I'm communicating is that the Word of God 
declares, I am true. And what it also suggests when you read it the way we've read it is that the Word of God, the activity of the Word of God in the Old Testament became Jesus in the New Testament. He became that action, that creation. He became that element. Does that make sense? Jesus becomes the Word. What was the Word? It was that active part of God, that creative part of God, the part of God that was never challenged successfully, the the part that was never derailed. And Jesus became the embodiment of that, and that's why he's called the Word of God. Does that make sense? This is part of the big challenge of Scripture in our culture today. It's the storyline of Scripture. Um, in today's world, it's often called the meta narrative. If you want to remember that 50 cent word, go for it. Uh, because you'll see it around, I mean, it just started like uh, 20 years ago or 30 years ago. People started using this word uh, to mean the overarching big picture. You see, God's overarching big picture is that He is God, He is Creator. And that his creation was separated from him in sin. And that he said, a time is coming when I will come and I will deal with that. And I will bring myself back together with my creation. And nothing's going to stop me. Nothing will derail me. No power under earth, no power of humanity, no power of, of, of all people groups together. My word will come true. And you realize why when Jesus was fulfilling that climax, why it becomes such a powerful moment on earth. You hear the language like in uh, Christmas songs about all creation is groaning. It's groaning out of the weight of sin and of corruption that we introduced. But the second Adam, Jesus, was introducing the kingdom of God, the rule and reign of God. Now, there's more to this story. This storyline, the beauty of this storyline is it also includes you and I. It's not Jesus' story. It's his story that he imparts and so when we, when we let go of the meta-narrative, when we let go of the storyline, we're letting go of ourself. And so to say, well, there has to be more than one way to get to the Father. It can't be just Jesus. That's arrogant on the part of Christians. Christians didn't write that. God did. And you can call God arrogant if you like. Christians have as big an issue with God as unbelievers do. We fight with God more than anybody. We argue with him. We resist him. 
We, we have our own book of issues with God. Many of us, even Christians, I think resent the fact that I have to find life in Jesus. I can't just find it. I can't just find God in my own way. You see, what I want to do is I want to write my own truth. I want my words to be on the level of God's words. Now who's arrogant? You see, it's my, my problem. I don't have to defend Jesus or God or his method of salvation. That's not what the gospel does. The gospel invites everyone, all people, all faiths. The gospel invites everyone. You know how we know that? Because the word says that. That's how we know that. Because the word describes that very issue. In the book of Isaiah, God wisely portrays this statement because the Jews did, didn't get it. He said, do you really think the plan of salvation God has is only for one little people group? Do you think that's true? It's too great a gift. It's too great a power. It's too great a thing for just one people group to be a part of. This is for God's creation. He's all that he loves is coming under the influence of that word that will not be stopped. You see, Jesus is not a limitation. He's the blank check. The storyline is being challenged. The storyline of a Savior. The storyline of the need of a Savior. Mankind is truly preoccupied with fixing himself. We have lots of methods, lots of ways, but the condition of our world today would suggest we're not any good at it. And on an individual basis, when you and I recognize that, Jesus is waiting there. He's patiently waiting. For some of us, he waited decades. For some of us in the room, he's still waiting on you. Not impatiently, patiently. Loving you. Drawing you, calling you. But some of us are still fighting to do it on our own. Resenting the dependence that it would require. Folks, your storyline needs to be clear. You need to have a clear understanding of what the Word of God says, that God's purpose, God's plan that will not be stopped. And you need to let that become foundational 
for you. Never touched, never upended. The next thing that's being challenged in our society today, and it's always been challenged, but I think even more so in the last 50 years or so, and that's truth. Truth as a compass. Truth has a great deal of power to shape you and I. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the truth. Wow. We keep running into Jesus, don't we? We keep bumping into this guy. Do you know why? Because he is the way. And he is the truth. And he is the climax of the meta narrative. That is your ticket and my ticket to freedom and life. And he knew that's who he was. And he was comfortable in that reality. I am the way, I am the truth. A few. scriptures for you here. He who testifies to, this is John 3, 32 through 34. He who testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, there's the word, for God, the words of God for God, and he gives the Spirit without limit. John 14, 6 and 7, these are not up here. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Truth is an interesting reality. Often what we're trying to do with truth is we convert it to rules. Truth equals rules. Biblical truth means it's something I have to do or it's something I can't do. But what the scripture is really saying is how life works. You can do anything you want, can't you? I mean, if we were to write down, if I were to say, hey, I'm going to give you a, a card, write down uh, just one particular sin of today. Most of you wouldn't have any trouble. Or should I say, most of us wouldn't have any trouble. The truth is there. And it becomes a transformer for you and I. It becomes a new way of living, a new way of thinking. But truth doesn't always do that. 
We can do anything we want with truth. Uh, most of you are too young to remember a man by the name of Bill Clements. Uh, he was the governor of Texas years ago. He was also president and founder of a company called Sedco. And I heard a story about Bill Clements. Uh, we'll call it true for right now because I heard it in the context that I believe. You know, years ago, they put rigs on four legs, offshore rigs. And then they came up with this better design, cheaper design, a very stable design, using three legs, like a tripod. And they went to Bill Clements to sell him these three-legged rigs, which are less money and more efficient and strong. And Bill Clements listens to the presentation from the engineers. Uh, they go on and on about the safety and the capability of it and how, less, how much less expensive it is. When they get to the end of their presentation, Bill Clements says, I like that rig. I like it. I want four of them. But I want you to do one thing for me. I want you to add an extra leg on each one of those things for me. We do that with truth all the time. Truth is God's truth. And we start rethinking it when it's uncomfortable. We start rethinking it when it's not serving our moment. But what God says is, oh, but it is serving your moment. And the more you, more, the more you don't want it, the more you see it as an, as an encumberment to you, the more you see it as a limiter to you, the more you see it as something stretching you, the more you need it. This is what the psalmist says in Psalm 119. It's the longest psalm uh, in the book of the Psalms. And over and over again, you see, and we'll talk about this psalm more later, you see the psalmist pursues truth. He wants that truth. He wants to know how it works. You see, he sees the value. He sees his, his story, his meta-narrative being realized in the truth. I hear lots of concern about the scripture. Maybe it's accuracy. Maybe um, it's veracity. Can we really depend on it? I mean, didn't men write it? Um, didn't they have their own agenda? I just want to share that Jesus appreciated and valued the Word of God. And out of 61 books, uh, 66 books in the Old Testament, 61 of them are quoted in the New Testament 
by different men and women of God. And Jesus himself quotes over, I think, uh, there's at least 36 quotes, and you'll hear some if you let slight quotes count. It can get up to 70, but numerous books over 36 times from the Old Testament. He knew the word, and he declared it. He saw it as relevant, and he demonstrated truth with the word of God. Matthew 7, 28 through 30, when Jesus had finished saying these things, he was preaching, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. When we began to embrace God in the word, you take on a whole different authority. When you move in the love and the grace of God, you will move in a different authority as you embrace his truth. And what we will begin to see is that where Jesus was for kingdom people enacted, inaugurated, when we see Jesus as the climax of the meta narrative, Jesus as the climax of the story, and that he became the word active then what does that make you and I? But the word active. And Jesus, in living out this climax, demonstrating the authority that comes in the word of God moving in men. Matthew 9, 5 through 8. When he's challenged on telling someone your, your sins are forgiven, he says in verse 5, which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say get up and walk? But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth. See, I want you to understand this. I want you to understand that these words are connected with authority. God's story, God's word, are connected with authority, and they produce action in our hearts, in our minds, in our behaviors, in our, in our involvement, engagement with humanity. You see, those three things happen. God's meta-narrative being realized in you, God's word, and then the authority that comes from that produces different life in you and I. And that's what Jesus is saying right here. And he says, so that you will know that this is true. See, we're getting to truth. So that you will know that this is true, whether you like it or not, whether you think it's good or not, whether you think it's according to the scripture or not, it really doesn't matter. This is truth. So he said to the paralyzed man, Oh, it said, so you know you have authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the paralyzed man, get up, take your mat, and go home. Then the man got up, and he went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, 
What did they do? Read it. They praised God who had given this kind of authority to man. Do not sacrifice the meta-narrative God has you in. Do not surrender it. Not to be politically correct. And we'll talk as we go through this series. You don't have to hit anybody with the truth. You're much better off demonstrating the truth. Live the truth. We don't have to correct people with the truth who are not asking for our correction. You know, I'm the pastor of, of, you know, however many people, but I am still aware. I don't necessarily have permission from you to correct you. I would never take that for granted. Now, if you were saying, Bill, you're my pastor, as opposed to, I attend your church. Those are different. One communicates that I have a role in your life and that you're going to trust me with that role. And that would include encouraging, correcting, those kinds of things. To attend church here does not communicate that. It says, I'm here. Now, I may ask you, hey, do you want my thoughts on that? Do you want some input on that? And then you could say, as a matter of fact, I don't. And I wouldn't tell you my thoughts on that. I wouldn't see that as for me to do. but I can still model and reveal truth. I can still step into the authority of that truth. And then by the spirit and the power of God, people who look on can go, wow, glory to God for giving authority to a human being to do something good. Matthew 10, verse 1, Jesus called his disciples, his 12 disciples to him, and he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits, to heal every disease and sickness. Jesus began to pull them in to the meta narrative of the climax. He began, he began to pull them in to the reality of this is how we live as a climax people. Last week we talked about, you know, this already not yet period. Well, Jesus would call that the climax period. He would say this is a point when all of creation, when all of the storyline is being revealed when the word is being enacted in the hands and in the abilities and the spirit of God through mankind. 
We can see it in these words. Colossians 2, 9 and 10. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. All the fullness of the power of God lives in a human body form. That's what it says. And in Christ, you have been brought into that fullness. In Christ, you have been brought into that fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. See, our, our attitude, our thoughts about skirting truth, blurring truth, if you are the one carrying truth to demonstrate the power and the reality and the glory of God for the benefit of all mankind, then it's better for you to know the truth, to embrace the truth, to live the truth, to let it saturate you, to let it go ahead and have its way and its work in you. Because then you begin to live out the meta-narrative of your life. And I begin to live it out for my life. The authority of the word should shape our lives because it's the life that God created for you and I. Um. Go ahead. I wanted to get back to our subject of the accuracy of Scripture. Uh, these are other, some of these are considered sacred writings. And for those, our listening audience, it's just a chart with authors and work on the left and the number of copies that we have of those on the right. And things like Caesar, Plato, uh, Herodias, uh, Sophocles, uh, they have numbers that range 10, 20, uh, 7, Sophocles 193. Uh, Homer of Iliad, uh, the Iliad is coming in at 643 copies. Uh, over 15,000 copies or 14,000 copies of the New Testament. Why is that important? Why would you care about that? Well, I want to explain a little bit how Scripture is validated or verified. Uh, what happens is we begin, at, we is not me, obviously, but very bright, brilliant people who know these ancient languages and study them. We began to look at them, different manuscripts, and we began to compare them. You see, when we say, well, man wrote them and man's had his hands all over them for thousands of years, how can we trust them? Well, it works something like this. Um, can you join me up here? So um, here's a, our oldest copy of... of a book in the New Testament. And these are all fragments. All these are fragments they find. In fact, none of the original texts are available today. Now you might think, well, that's not really a selling feature, Bill. 
But, but let's, let's press on, and we might find that it is. All right, so if you come up. So we, we find other texts that are dated a couple of hundred years later. Now, here's what we can do. We can look to see how many changes happened over that 200 years. I mean, Victor got his hands on it, and he didn't like that part because it was cramping his style, so he makes an adjustment. I know we would never do that, but we have on everything else. We can't even find an original copy of, of Shakespeare. All right, if I could have you join me. Now, another 200 years down the road, we're very excited. We just uncovered this, and now we're going to compare it to this one and this one. And now we have this one right here. Actually, I should have started with her because she's our latest copy that we know of. And it's exactly like these. And then we're very excited. We find an even later copy to the end. All right, so then in the 1950s, and, and you have to understand, there was no command by God to save the Bible, to save the words. Yeah, there's no command to do that. People were just hanging on to peace. You know why? Because it was truth. They gave their life for it. They hid it. They treated it like the pearl of great price. Where we put a Bible somewhere, it gathers dust, it becomes something we put our beer on or whatever. They saw it as precious, not sacred, but precious. When I say sacred, it wasn't about, you know, you couldn't touch the floor or something like that. But it was the living Word of God, and it had the power to be active, as we discussed. All right, so, you know, years go by, years go by, and this is what we have to work with. And, and we, have a, we have a few pieces to fill in. Um, and we see another one, and we're very excited because across this thousand years, there is such a small fraction. It's one half of one half of a percent, something like that, that they find ambiguous here. And then the coup de grace. It's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. These scrolls were sound in the 1950s, and if we were to place her on the chart, she would be in the nursery. And it had some of the most complete texts from the Old Testament, and there was great excitement. Why? Why was there great excitement? They wanted to know, is it going to look like these? Because it's an old one. This is like back in the day. And the most complete text that we've ever gotten, like entire books and stuff like that, they're all in these jars hidden in these caves. And when they began to study them, they were exactly like these. So if there was any change ever made to the Scripture, it was in the first century. It was the apostles. It was Jesus himself violating the Word because the Word is this not miraculous? Amen. It doesn't happen like this. You know, I used, to write, I used to write study plans as a flight instructor. And these are, these are plans, these are lesson plans. And people would want to use, oh, these are perfect, Bill, these are great. And they would, 
They would get a copy of them from me. Six months later, I'd see somebody else had them. They looked nothing like what I wrote. What was so perfect about them if they're completely changed? You see, this, we're talking about over 14,000 copies to look across. It is the most evaluated. It is the most studied. It's the most critically conditioned text in history. Thank you, folks. A great timeline you are. When you look at these, and the closest one is the Iliad of Homer, and it has errors in it of huge magnitude compared to the Scripture. What it attests to is God is capable of protecting his words because they're his words, because they're powerful, and they carry a power and authority that were intrinsically placed in them for this day, for you and I to live out the truth, to live out the truth of God and to let it produce the authority of God and let that produce the actions of God which play into the meta-narrative of God. You see how that goes beyond your personality, your weaknesses, your struggles, it's beyond that. Why? Because you have become the fullness in Christ. Because he was the fullness. If you could stand. <clears throat>